we're picking up a white hot, a white hot topic this morning. Uh, so hot that I wondered if you can really approach it without getting burned, which is um, kind of odd in one aspect because it's pretty straightforward. The scriptures talk about this, has a very clear stance on it, is going to allow me to speak pretty directly and boldly to you about that. Uh, I think what's disappointing is that as I've uh, done my research, the church has not always lined up with what the, the scriptures clearly teach, and so that's messy and that's troubling. But maybe where um, things get difficult is um, when it moves out into the way the culture is currently responding on this issue. And th there is uh, a take on this. And I think um, part of what's been disappointing for me is that um, as I've gone and I've um, done some work on this, I've noticed that a lot of followers of Jesus are jumping on board the cultural um, conversation points, this train that's kind of moving along on this issue. And I'm not sure that they understand that there's a philosophy driving this stuff that's kind of in the background that sees things very differently than God does. And I suspect they wouldn't find themselves so directly in alignment with some of the ideas and some of the things that are being said if they understood all of that. Um, it's been months, months that this has been a hot topic in our country, and uh, I've taken my time with it. I've done a lot of reading, I've done a lot of listening, I've had conversations with people, and right now I'm feeling fairly confident about where God has led me um, to talk with you. What I feel less confident about these days is whether there's, um, there's going to be a lot of reception to what I have to say. Uh, Tracy and I have been uh, kind of talking about this series and wondering, you know, what do we do? We don't see an environment out there where people want to be challenged or hear different thoughts or any kind of, um, kind of opposition to any idea at this point. It's considered like attacking if you do that sort of thing. But here's, um, here's my role. I'm supposed to speak truth. And if I'm more concerned about how people receive it than I am in speaking truth, then I might not do my job. And so uh, this morning, that's really the best that I can do is hope to speak truth. So that's where I want to start. Would you pray with me before we get started? Uh, God, you and I have done a lot of work on this together. I think you put some stuff in my heart. I ask that you give me the courage to say what's true. And I, I'm going to leave how this moves out into people's hearts and minds to you. I trust you with that. And ask that you would just take this and advance your kingdom however you see fit. Allow my words to accurately reflect the values in the heart you have on this issue. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to address racism, and I want to start where I think it, it starts. This is, um, this is my opinion. I'd love for you to see what you think about this. But I think this shows up really early on in the text. Uh, it, I think it gets introduced um, when a half-truth is told and it's bought into. This is when the serpent speaks to Eve and says this. This is verse 5 of chapter 3 of Genesis. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Trying to convince her to eat from the tree, 
and basically says, listen, here's, the, here's what I want you to do. We talked about this in January. I want you to elevate your desires to the top of the heap for how you make decisions. If you desire it, that's good enough, just do it. And what he leaves out is that when God does that, God's perfect. So he can elevate his desires and nothing's going to get messed up. But when we do, when we elevate our desires above, say, when God says, don't do that because it'll harm you, and we say, I desire to do it anyway, and we do it, it causes all kinds of problems and messes. And so we see here that they're, that they're warned. I want you to do this. But, but the serpent makes an appeal to something very specific. I don't know if you saw it. He said, you could be like God. And here's what's interesting about this. It's not just that that sounded good to Adam and Eve. That sounded doable. Yeah, I think I could do God's job. I think I got a grip on this. I, I probably could have the skill and capacity to pull this off. I think I'm going to go for this. Here's the thing that I'm convinced of. I think one of the core problems with mankind, me, you, all of us, we over-evaluate ourselves and under-evaluate everybody else. You want to know how messed up this was? Adam and Eve over-evaluated themselves and under-evaluated God. We think we could probably do just as good of a job as God could. Um, now, you would say, well, you know, does everybody do that? Because I've seen people who seem to take the other side of that. They're always down on themselves. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but somebody who thinks deeply negatively about themselves, if you tried to offer them God's view of who they are, they'll reject you because they know better. And they become judge and jury in their own life. And it's sneaky, but they still have this attitude. It's the same. It's the same as the people who, that Adam and Eve did. They think they're better than they are. I think I'm better than I am kind of thinking is at the root of all of this stuff. It leads to arrogance. I think it leads to stubbornness. It makes you unteachable. And I'm convinced it leads to racism. It leads to this belief that I'm somehow better than everybody else. I'm better because I'm smarter. I'm better because of my social status. I'm better because of the group that I'm with or I'm not with. I'm better because of my color. I'm better because of the cultural group that I'm with. It's all the same mess. And it's, and it's messed up. It's this I'm better kind of thinking. Now, it's only made more complicated by another thing that we all seem to do that, again, comes from this desire to evaluate ourselves higher than everybody else. And it has to do with how we make decisions. Almost all of us have to make a lot of life decisions, and we want to make the best decision possible. But somewhere in the process of making the best decision, we confuse best with right. And our best decision now becomes the right decision, and everybody else who doesn't do it the way we do it, doesn't think the way we think, is now not right. And I, I see this with marriage all the time. I see couples get married. You have two people who are now blending their lives together. And one of them thinks 
that the way they were raised, that the way they think, that the way they see the world is the right way, and they demand that the other person changes and gets in line, instead of understanding that God just put you with somebody who was different than you so that you could have this blending, this, this strengthening of a relationship, you demand them to change, and it causes a mess. Where does it come from? I think I'm better. I think I'm right. And it works itself out into all these kind of dangerous things. I'm smarter. I'm right. I'm superior. Now here, this is where it gets weird and hard. Because it gets more complicated inside the church. Because you know what? We do talk about right and wrong. I still, I'm one of those old-fashioned guys who believes that there's still right and wrong. That the scripture talks about that sort of stuff. And so we have to find a way to align ourselves with what God says is right and wrong. Because it really serves our lives well to be on his path and on his values. But what happens sometimes even in the church is that people want to be seen as superior. I'm better spiritually. And so they assign the way they do things as right. And the way they talk about it is if the scripture backs the way they've done it. And all of a sudden you have this weird stuff where even spiritual leaders, like religious leaders, are advancing ideas that have to do with them being superior to everybody else. I'm better because I live this way, think this way, believe this thing, and you should do the same too. Even if the scriptures don't require it, I'll bend it and make it seem like you should do that as well. And so it becomes complicated. And it's all the same stuff. It's the same kind of push for a sense of superiority. And I think we should live based on what's right. But I can tell you this. In the scriptures, it was never done with a sense of superiority. In fact, if you pay attention to what Jesus did, the scriptures say he came as a bondservant. He emptied himself and chose to just be a servant to us. That's the attitude that he came with. And it's opposite. It's opposite of what you see from Adam and Eve, who decided that they should be the ones who were in control. They would elevate themselves. Now, here's the thing. Um, this elevation thing that we do where we see ourselves as better, superior, more important than others, God is opposed to it and he's opposed to it from the beginning of this book to the end of this book. It's clear as a bell. Let me give you some examples. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, where God's laying down the law, saying, hey, this is the way I want you to live, this is the way I want you to think about stuff. He says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. And then he goes on to list. He says, he defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Those three groups that just got named would have been very low social status. Very few protections would have been afforded them in any other place that you would have seen in ancient cultures. God says, them, they're not better. They're not worse. There's no partiality. I'm taking care of everybody. I have a heart for everybody. I don't care what group you're in. 
This goes throughout the whole scriptures. By the way, this is Torah. This is the earliest scriptures that they had. Now, you follow this through, and you'll find this kind of thinking everywhere. You'll get to the New Testament. Peter, who spent three years with Jesus, is now leading the church, still doesn't have this fully down. Okay? So in Acts chapter 10, he has an experience. I want you to see what it says here. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Like, you were with him this whole time. You saw how he lived. You saw how he talked. You knew what his belief system were. Like, how could you not figure this out? Because there is something in us that causes us to think we're better than we are. And even though he had been exposed to this, it was finally dawning on him when he sees this. What does he see? But he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. God was accepting these Gentiles. Peter was hanging out with some Gentiles. And there was a period in history where Jews thought that they were better than them. They were favored by God. And it went off as a light in Peter's head. He doesn't care about this stuff. He cares about their heart and minds. And when their hearts respond to God, that's all he cares about. And the rest of it, he doesn't see. You'll find Paul writing the same way. God does not care about what group you're associated with. He cares about the heart of the matter and your heart. It gets gets said all over his writings, but in Galatians chapter 3, this is said, it's pretty direct and I love it. 328, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but what I just read here was one of the reasons the church was persecuted in Rome. Rome was built on social status and everybody accepting their place in the world and living that way. And Christianity rejected it. They were mixing slaves and free people together in meetings. What in the world was going on? We cannot allow this kind of stuff to happen. He did not see you in groups. He saw you as a united force underneath his banner. The rest of it didn't matter. And that stays consistent. I love how this um, it ends in Revelations. John's having a vision about heaven. And this gets written. This is in Revelation 7-9. After I, this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I think it's kind of ironic that God doesn't see people in groups, but he was naming them in groups in this place. I think he did that for our sake to help us understand that when it comes to how he looks at the world, none of that stuff matters to him. And because it doesn't matter to him, the heavens are full of diversity. Full, chock full of people that you will not be able to fully understand what they say, what they do. You won't understand their culture, and you'll get an eternity to figure out their passion for God. This is the kind of stuff that's full in the scriptures. There's no favoritism. There's no superiority. There is a God who created all, who loves all, who pursues all, who sent his son to die for all. 
The rest is noise and it doesn't matter to him. And I'd like to suggest to you that if that's the case, that should be our value too. And I can tell you, the scriptures are bent from the beginning to the end with that kind of message. It's why it's troubling that when you look back over church history, you can find movements that told people that there were races that were inferior. It was taught in churches. You can find where there were preachers who were convincing people that you should not baptize everybody because everybody didn't have a soul. Taught in churches. You can find where violence was started or incited by Christian groups against Jewish people on a pretty regular basis. You can find in our history where churches in the South backed the idea of slavery. And you wonder, how can this be? If, it, if it's from the front to the back, it talks about this so clearly. How could this happen? It happens because we have a flaw in our human nature. We want to think we're better than we are. We want to think that we're superior, that we know more, that we can do this better than other people can, that our decisions are more right than theirs. And it causes all kinds of problems. We over-evaluate ourselves and because we've done that over the course of history, it sometimes made it difficult for the church to just say what's plainly true. It's not right to evaluate people on the group that they're with. It's not okay to make judgments along racial lines, cultural lines, gender lines. It's not okay to do that kind of stuff. There's no place in God's kingdom where his values say, hey, I've got some favoritism towards you. Doesn't happen. And if it doesn't happen with him, and our desire is to follow after him, then that should be our goal. That should be the gold standard by which we live. And I'm, cons I'm convinced that we must. Now, I think it's uh, maybe a little uncomfortable that we look at some of the stuff that's happened in the church history. But I think we've got to be honest about it. We haven't, we haven't always got this right as a group. But I think part of the problem, when you go back and you look at church history, some people will say, but that's all it is. It's history. It's not now. There's nothing going on right now that would cause us to say the church has a problem. Um, it's all in the past. Can I ask you to consider a couple things? It, it wasn't uh, more than 60 years ago that we had laws in this country that were written into, the, written into the fabric of how society worked that endorsed racism, like supported it, held it up. There are people who are still alive today who lived underneath that. And if you think they haven't carried the scars of that system with them, you're mistaken. We're not talking ancient history here. This is recent history for us. And so there is a mess that has come with us, and it's not, it's not simple enough to just write this off as past stuff. 
Now, more than that, there is also some evidence that the church has some lingering problems on this issue. I'm going to give you some statistics. I'm going to start outside the church so that you can understand why I think it's a significant problem inside the church. And I'm going to use the most recent dates that I could find stuff. Okay? Um, In 2013, a survey of um, non-blacks were done in the U.S. And 16% of people said that they thought interracial marriage was wrong. In 2016, that same poll was done, same group of people, and it had gone down 2%. It's at 14%. Now, on that that first one that they did, um, they broke it down into some other categories, and they found that among Republicans, 28% thought that interracial marriage was wrong, and 12% of Democrats thought interracial marriage was wrong. Um, Not just wrong, morally wrong. It was wrong uh, based on some higher moral teaching. Now, here's where it gets difficult. This is the closest number. 2008 is the earliest I can find for this. But honestly, it's close enough, right? 2008. They did a survey of evangelical white Christians and found that 34% of them said that interracial marriage was morally wrong. Now, hopefully... We've seen that trend line move, but if it moved like the other one did a few percent, it's still not enough. There's an indication that something is terribly wrong. Um, And um, it's not just um, theory either, okay? I want to introduce you to my uh, sister. Uh, This is my sister Dorcas. This is her husband, Errol. Uh, Errol, great guy. They're both uh, wonderful. Errol's been in ministry his whole life. He's got a great family. They're all older now. Um, Some of them are involved in ministry. Uh, Really great kind of stuff. Uh, He started as a youth pastor and grew a youth ministry to 80 kids. He did this this without any extra help or support. If you understand um, how hard that is with that many kids, it's very difficult. He was doing an incredibly fantastic job. And at the church he was with, they had um, a business meeting, and it was a type of church where you would vote to either retain or let somebody go. And so the whole congregation would get to vote on that. And at um, one of those uh, meetings, somebody stood up and made the case that he should be let go from his job because he was in an interracial marriage. Now, um, this... The only thing that gives me some great deal of comfort is the church leaders they came to his aid and they said this is wrong and it should be rejected. I want you to know this is not ancient history. This is stuff that the church is still dealing with. And it's an indication that something's wrong when you think there's morally 
something wrong with, some, with this kind of relationship. If God only cares about the heart, who cares about the color? Who cares about that? And, and these days, you probably would not have somebody stand up in a meeting and publicly attack somebody like that. It's going to happen quietly at a party or through whispers. And it's still not okay. And so because of that, because I know there's still stuff going on on this issue inside the church, we're going to deal with it. And for the next two weeks, I want to I take you into some stuff that I think if you paid attention to and you integrated into your life, you could put up a firewall against this kind of thinking, against this I'm superior, against this I'm better kind of thinking. And I'm convinced it needs to be done. But here's why I'm kind of disappointed at the same time. Because I'm gonna, we're going to do this for the next two weeks, but I'm going to come at this from a scriptural standpoint. And it's not going to sound the same as what's currently happening in our culture. And I think our culture is off the tracks on this, and I want to tell you why. I want to explain why I think that's the case. Um, Martin Luther King said, I want to just read it. He said, I dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I'm convinced this is how God sees it. He looks at the hearts and minds of individuals. And something is happening with the way our culture is addressing this. Where it's no longer about hearts and minds. So let me give you an example. Let's pull up the slide um, of Black Lives Matter. Um, this movement is, if you haven't heard of it, I don't know how to help you, right? Um, if you haven't heard of it, here's the thing. The sentiment behind those words and those words, I haven't run into too many people. I, I, I don't know any who wouldn't agree with the sentiment of those words. That the black lives matter. Um, maybe it's the circles I run in. Or maybe it's just common sense, right? Yeah, they do. That's absolutely right. The problem is that sentiment is not driving this movement. Something else is. There's a, um, there's a philosophy that is operating in the back of this thing, that is driving this thing forward. It's actually a postmodern theory that started in an academic area, and now it's working its way out into um, corporations and government right now. And it has some very specific things that it believes. And I want you to understand that right now, the ideas that are dr being driven by this thing are not being driven by the sentiment that black lives matter. It's being driven by a philosophy that's operating in the background. And I want to bring that into the light because I think you need to know exactly what this thing believes and what's going on. So I can't give you the full course. Like, I spent a lot of time on this, and I'm just going to give you, like, blips, all right? Um, where it's coming from is it started with this core idea called critical theory. 
Critical theory is the belief that if you want to change something in society, you have to criticize it and criticize it and criticize it to the point that everybody is disgusted by it so that they want it to change. So you find everything wrong that you can and you criticize it. It has given birth to whole myriads of different belief systems. You can put up the next slide where there are all kinds of different theories that are going on that are being driven by critical theory. One that's really hot right now, though, the one that's kind of taken center stage, that's got most of our attention, is critical race theory. That's the one I want to talk to you about. Uh, and critical race theory is a, a belief system that if you line up with it, it expects you to live in a certain way. If you view the world this way, then you have to live a certain way. And I want to tell you how they view the world. Uh, this theory believes that there are only two groups of people. Two. You're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. That's it. They can break you down into that group. And here's the thing. In order for me to fully understand you, all I have to do is to figure out whether you're an oppressor or oppressed. I don't have to get to know you. I don't have to get to know your story. I don't need to know what's in your heart. I don't need to know any of that. I just need to figure out what group you're in. And uh, by the way, they're helping people figure out what groups they're in. And I want to show you an actual page out of stuff that they're using to teach people about this. So I'm going to put that up on the screen. And they have, they have kind of detailed out, if you are in this group, this is the wrong that you're doing, and this is the wrong you're doing it to. And that's all I need to know. I just need to know what group you're in. And here's what I want from you. Because if you're in one of these oppressor groups, the one thing I want from you is just agree with every solution that we have to this. That's all I expect. And if you don't agree with every solution we have for this, then that's just an indication that your group has contaminated you and you're a problem. Now what happens, per se, if you're in two groups? Because if you're a woman, you're in an oppressed group. And let's say you don't like one of the conclusions that they have. And so you decide to bring up an alternative idea because you don't agree with the idea that they were presenting. They would simply move off you being a woman and they would find a different category that you belong to that's obviously contaminating your thinking. You're either white or you're a Christian. That's your problem. You have to unload those things to completely agree with us. The goal is not to have discussions, debate, or anything like that. The goal is for you to simply agree. I want you to agree with whatever we have to say. And here's where it gets, here's where it gets messy. This is the postmodern part of it. Uh, postmodern thinking doesn't believe that there's any truth. There's nothing that you can count on. All you have is your personal experience. And so when you say, this is what I want to do and this is the solution, it's based on my personal experience. And if I won't accept what you just said, I've got a problem. You're not allowed to ask for evidence. You're not allowed to ask for data. You're not allowed to ask for anything that would be concrete because it's based on somebody's personal experience. And there's actually a hierarchy. The person who's the most oppressed, whoever is the most oppressed, gets to set the agenda. 
they get to decide whatever the outcome should be for everybody else to follow. And you have to agree, and if you don't, we'll just put a label on you. You're racist. You're whatever. You only want full agreement. It's become this thing where I can assign intentions and motives just by figuring out what group you're in. It's why you're hearing a lot right now in our culture about systemic racism. Because the conclusion is that it exists just simply because these groups exist. It exists because there's oppressors and oppressed. And I don't even have to find evidence for this. This is part of what's been difficult for me as I've had I have friends that I love and care about who have sent me some things to, hey, this might help you understand where things are at. And so I, I read through all of those, and then I went and did the research on what they were saying, and there's no evidence for the stuff that they were presenting as fact. I, I couldn't find the evidence for it. <clears throat> it's, not, it's not important. It's not important. What's important is that you accept what I'm saying, what I believe, what my experience is, and you just accept that racism is built into the system even if you can't find it. And we know this because there are oppressor groups and oppressed groups. And this is how it works. By the way, this um, if the light hasn't gone off yet, in this view of the world, there will only ever be oppressor groups and oppressed groups. And the goal is to find a way to take the oppressed people and to make them the oppressors as payback in the process. Because there's not a middle ground where suddenly everybody gets along together. That does not exist. It's these two groups fighting it out. So that's why you've heard all cops are bad. Why? Because I can just pick a group. I can assign attention and motives to them. And I can write them all off. That's why you've heard all whites are racist. Why? Because I can attach intention and motive to them and write them all off. And you know what stinks about that? There's, there's real problems that need to be addressed. There are, there are bad cops. There are bad pastors. There are bad belief systems. There's bad white... There is... People who believe they're superior think they're better than other people. And we've got to find a way to deal with that, to root that out, to have those conversations, to change hearts and minds. But this is not about changing hearts and minds. This is about lumping people into groups, assigning motives and intentions in a grasp for power. It's messed up messed up their view of the world is the opposite of the way God sees it he doesn't see you in your group he doesn't see you with your race he doesn't see you with your occupation he sees your heart and mind and for some of us Many of us, all of us, I think at times, 
have had trouble with believing that we're superior or better than we actually were because it's a core problem that we carry. And unless we can honestly deal with that, we're not going to make headway on this issue. And right now, the water is so muddied based on a philosophy that does not align with God's thinking that we're not able to have the kind of conversations that we need to have. I'm hoping over the next two weeks that at least we can, that it can start with you here, that you at home, where you'll seriously think about that, do I have this better than others attitude that needs to be taken away from me? Have I done that in racial ways to people around me? And that we could start to change what needs to be changed with us. But I'm not going to do it in light of this cultural conversation. I'm not going to use their values because I think they're opposed to God. And we've done this with everything else here, right? You've heard me often talk about we're not going to line up with the culture on this. We're going to line up with God on this. We're going to do it on this issue too. And I hope you'll have the courage to keep coming back and hear me out. Because I think we've got a couple of things that if we follow the instructions of the scripture, we could actually do this. We could become the kind of people who carry God's values into the world. Can I pray with you? God, I thank you um, for being present this morning. This is a hard topic that is causing problems all around our country. There are a lot of wounded feelings. And God, my desire is not to add to that, but it is to speak the truth. I love following a God who shows no favoritism, who has no partiality, who will welcome all whose hearts and minds are turned towards him. God, I ask that that would become our our drive that would ultimately shape the way we think and talk and do things would be your values and nothing else. We love you. May you move us forward in Jesus' name. Amen.